Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the very latest episode of the Andy J Podcast. How are you doing? I hope you're having a really, really good week. I am pleased to say today we are spending quite happily much more than an hour with the glorious Kate Humble. Now here is a very special lady. In terms of her life on television, she's hosted shows including Top Gear, Tomorrow's World, Spring Watch, Rough Science, Country File, Extreme Wives and now Escape to the Farm and Coastal Britain. She is also a lady who is known for having some views on things like being a naturist and choosing not to be a mother, etc. She also has a new book out called Home Cooked. It's a cookbook, can you believe? I'm really, really chuffed that Kate has diversified. She, of course, famously has a farm. She has lived on a farm for some time and she has this wonderful life in and around the farm, which she documents in her TV shows. And some friends of hers said, look, you've got to do a cookbook. So I'm really pleased to say that is exactly what she's done. And also, if you're listening to this in real time, I can tell you right now, you can see Kate on tour. She's touring the UK, talking about her life and cookery and all sorts of other things. So I thoroughly encourage you to hang out with Kate Humble, because I can tell you, having now had this conversation with her, she is solid gold. What a fabulous lady. I should tell you, early on in this conversation, things get a bit crude and a bit silly and a bit naughty. In fact, very early out the starting blocks, we start talking about what happens when we need a wee, uh, when we're doing our jobs and so on. And she has some brilliant stories that I have decided to keep in because they're funny and she's good good company so i think you'll enjoy this one i think i've given you a bit of an overview haven't i of her wonderful life she's brilliant i think you're gonna love this here is kate humble the andy J podcast i am so pleased to welcome my very special guest for the whole show for today she is a hugely established tv presenter she's been on shows including top gear and tomorrow's world remember that what a show that was and of course a host of incredible nature-based shows like spring watch and country file through to things like rough science and extreme wives now she can be seen on escape to the farm and coastal britain and she has a new book out called home cooked recipes from the farm not only that, she happens to be properly gorgeous. It's the wonderful Kate Humble. How are you doing, Kate? I think you might be talking about somebody else. <laughs> the gore- I mean, everything else is all right, but the gorgeous bit, I think that, that's stretching. Well, that's, I, I, you're, just, you're just buttering me up now, aren't you? <laughs> I thought to myself, I'm still talking. Why? This is a really long <laughs> intro. But all I needed to say was, you know her, she's the lovely lady with the amazing hair from the telly. That's what I should have just said. The scruffy blonde that's always got mud on her jeans, that one. <laughs> well, yes. The one that my mum still says, darling, could you please brush your hair? Why? Your hair's amazing. <laughs> well, as I say to anybody who says I look a bit of a mess, try standing on a Welsh hillside for five minutes and see how you look. 
<laughs> I can vouchsafe that that is tough, actually. I once, I don't know why we're talking about me, it's, we're here to talk about you, but I once hosted um, some incredible racing, uh, I think it was the World Rally Championship or something, on, on a freezing mountaintop in Wales, where we weren't, mm. we weren't anticipating being there as long as we were, turned out we were there for about 13 hours, nor for it to be just as cold as it was. And yes, it ruins everything, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's brutal. Yeah. yeah. Basically, basically, you know, you can have the finest makeup artist in the world. I don't have a makeup artist full stop, but if you did, uh, you, you know, nothing is going to stop your hair going awry, your nose dripping, your eyes running, and basically you're getting that kind of slightly corned beef look about the teeth. <laughs> It's that it's that TV presenter's hypothermic look, isn't it? It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you're but you're looking very stoic at the same time. I'm absolutely fine, even <laughs> though I really, really need a wee, and it's minus twenty. <laughs> yes. Well, Kate, we have to have a word on wees because why not start as we mean to go on? The pair of us, I can share with the listeners that just before we came on air, Kate and I were saying. We are both slightly apprehensive going into these hour-long chats with, with you know, the old bladder thing. And you said, well, I've got an amazing knee ninja wee story to share. And I said, wait till we're alive. Because now we're live. <laughs> we're live. We, now, can't, we can't get out of it. No, we can't. We absolutely can't. Gosh, your poor listeners. Really? <laughs> do they want to hear this? Of course they um, do. Okay. Well, it involves being in a very, very small plane. Um, and so I was working in Namibia, in Southwest Africa, and um, had flown over on a normal plane, uh, as you do, and um, and I'd done all the things that everybody tells you, which when you're doing an overnight flight, then you're going to be working the minute you kind of touch the ground, you know, drink lots of water, don't drink alcohol, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll sleep better, you'll look better, you'll feel better. So mm. I had done that. I had drunk basically a swimming pool's worth of water on this overnight flight from London to Vintook in Namibia. And then we had to get straight into a small bush plane to fly up to an area called the Capri District. And um, I was working with Ben Fogel, so it was with lovely Ben um, and a couple of other blokes. So basically it was all blokes and me in a six-seater bush plane oh, um, with all our luggage. And I was in the back seat. Ben always takes the front seat. There's nothing I can do about it. His chivalry is just, you know, uh, to be questioned, I would say. Yes. Um, so Ben's in the front seat with the pilot. There's uh, uh, our, our lovely producer and director in the next two seats. And I'm right at the back with the luggage. Anyway, you can think of that what you what you will. Um, that's probably a reason why I'm known as you the package. You were the Sherpa. <laughs> so there I am in the back seat, and we're in Africa, and it's incredibly exciting, and it's a continent that I absolutely love. Um, and we were going to be there for two months, and it was going to be it was an amazing, amazing project. Anyway, so off we go, and we take off, and I'm a little bit nervous about flying. I used to be really terrified of flying, but I've got better over the years simply because I've done a lot of it. So I'm sitting in the back of this plane, trying not to think about the fact that I'm in a very small plane and, and, and trying to enjoy the incredible landscape below us. And um, after about probably 40 minutes or so, I'm thinking, hmm, all that water I drank, kind of, it's kind of making itself known <laughs> again. And uh, so I sort of leaned over everybody, and because they're quite noisy, those little planes, and said to the, shouted ahead to the pilot, I said, um, how much longer have we got to go, do you think? And he said, oh, probably about another 45, we're about halfway. And I'm like, 
oh my god oh. this is not going to happen getting a little I'm, bit cross I'm not going to be able to hold yeah. on for 45 minutes not a chance even though my jeans are quite tight and I can I, you know cross my legs not going to happen so I sit there for a bit and um, and you know when you have that feeling and, and it just then becomes completely overwhelming. You can't think about anything else. You can't speak. You can't do anything. And oh, so I'm just looking. I'm looking at the sick bag in the oh, pocket no. in the front and I'm thinking, could I? Maybe I could. Maybe, maybe that is. In fact, there's not a maybe about it. This is the only way I am going to get through this life. So I had to say to, you know, all these men, two of whom I knew, two of whom I'd never met before. Oh, even better. Um, could you just. <laughs> you know, perhaps sing a bit, look forward and ignore the kind of slightly undignified rustling from the back. <laughs> mm. Anyway, it worked. It was brilliant. Wow. Get off the plane and then meet the people on the ground. And we had turbulence. Oh, I mean, you no. know, I, oh, no. you know, taught pelvic floors. <laughs> I think I did pretty well today. Well done. That's, yeah, and but mind you, that was, about, that was about 15 years ago. I don't think I can do it now. <laughs> I don't think I've got the flexibility or the pelvic floor. <laughs> Wonderful! What a what a glorious start to our friendship, Kate, and and to our <laughs> to our dear listeners that have just just joined us. That is the wonderful national treasure that is Kate Humble sharing us sharing us her bladder control stories on a small mm. bladder. Well, good. I mean, good for you. You found a way. I mean, what else was he going to do? Put the plane down so you can have a wee. You you. Well, he couldn't. I said. No. I said, please, can you land? And he went, no, we haven't got enough fuel. You know, because actually, I mean, you know this, if you land the plane, you need quite a lot of fuel to get it up again. Yeah. As it were. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, hopefully we'll survive the rest of this chat without the need for sick bags. But if we do, then we know what's going on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you are playing a little bit of roulette with this conversation, though, Kate, because you are swigging on the teas. So I am swigging on the tea. Yeah. yeah, I've got I've got a large pot of tea to get me through this hour. <laughs> um, yeah. So if if you know, you might have to do a little song and dance routine in in around about twenty five minutes, <sighs> just to kind of keep everybody amused while I nip off. We'll, we'll we'll throw to some adverts and, and it'll be fine. And that reminds me of a time when I was hosting um, some Speedway in uh, in Bidgosz in Poland, and I had dreadful food poisoning. But I was, of course, I was the only host there, and we'd been there for a few days. We'd already hosted a few of the shows, and it was the big final that evening. And I had off. I mean, I was in real trouble. You know what? You know what it's like when you're in real yeah, trouble. Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, every every orifice. Oh, it was t- truly, truly horrific. But the show must go yeah. on, as they say. And Indeed. so, and as the only host, there was no one that could replace me. So I had to go on. And we were up on one of these gantries where the rest of the crew, the, you know, the camera camera guys were up with us. There was myself and an expert who was a, a former pro rider, and just a big dustbin. And the director just said, "Look." make this signal with your hand when you need me to cut away to your to your guest or to throw to some kind of VT. And I had to, I mean, that, that was a big dustbin and it was full by the end. It was a tough oh night. It was a tough oh night. That God. that signal was used a lot. It was... A, I mean, people, people say our, jo- our jobs and our lives are glamorous. Yes, they're wrong most of the time. <laughs> so wrong. I threw up on a 3,000-year-old temple in Karnak <laughs> in front of the head of antiquities, uh, who was quite grumpy anyway. And, uh, yeah, similarly, had terrible, terrible food poisoning, filming in Egypt, and um, had to interview this man um, who was quite scary. And I think probably, you know, 
probably did just bump people off if he didn't like them. He was that sort. Okay. And um, and and I was really very very ill, like you. And um, in the middle of the interview, I said, "I'm really terribly terribly sorry." Good to be sick, and um, yeah, went and threw up behind a pillar with hieroglyphs and everything. Oh no! Oh, that's terrible. that's awful. Mm. You must I'm not have sure I'm ever terrible. going to be allowed back to Egypt. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, can you imagine yeah. that you might have changed the hieroglyphic meanings? I mean, anything could. Have you, yeah, I know. Oh my, I know, I know. Anyway, there we are. Yeah, well, the worst thing is people don't kind of realise, it's like you say, people think the job's so glamorous and so on, but when you are having a feeling rough day and when things like that oh. happen, it's not yeah. just the explosion that, that happens itself, it's all the build-up as well. You know, you are acutely aware of it whilst trying to concentrate on the job and so on. It's kind of the mm-hmm. thing that's, it's like a dark shadow just closing in. You're like, I can't, I, yeah. I've got to keep going. I've got to keep, oh no, I really can't. And there it is. <laughs> Make the hand gesture cut to the break it's one of those so Kate one of the things that I, I I love to do on this show is I like to talk to people about how they got to this position of prominence in their life and of course you know the, the public are acutely aware you've hosted so many shows now you are one of these people that falls into that household name category you must you must get recognized everywhere you go you must occasionally notice when you're in cafes and things those discreet photographs the cameras that are coming out getting snaps of you and so on you've reached one of you're at that point you know what i mean you've you've got that level of prominence in the uk and it's and it's a it's a flattering and lovely thing but it wasn't always like that. And there's usually an interesting journey that's got you to where you are. So in a very long-winded way, can we can we talk about growing up and life for you in the beginning? Yeah, we can. But, you know, you're, I, I, I would disagree about the household name thing. I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes I will walk down the street with somebody I'm, I, you know, with a friend or with my husband or something, and they'll go, "Oh, you're being recognised quite a lot today." I literally, it doesn't. It's a funny, it's a funny old thing. I think if you are, you know, if you're an actor or you're a, 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 a you know, a singer, um, if you're, I mean, I've I've heard stories of people who are actors in soap operas, and people find it very difficult to disassociate them from their characters. And so, you know, if they're a bad character in EastEnders something people mm. come up and shout at them and they're like hang on a minute I'm just you know I'm just Bob I'm not I'm not whoever um I I really don't get that um uh I don't I don't get that level of recognition I don't get that level of I mean sometimes I get people coming up and saying you know we love we loved that show um or thank you for getting us through lockdown because we loved watching the program about the farm or whatever it was. Mm. And, and actually I feel, um, I feel a bit sort of, well, I love it. I, I mean, it's, it's incredibly kind that people will do that. will come up and say, thank you to me for doing something that I love when there are loads and loads and loads of people out there who do jobs that make all our lives better and no one ever says thank you. So I feel slightly kind of, uh, nervous about it. And also I am, she says, doing an hour-long interview on the radio, not somebody who particularly wants to be in the press. I'm not, I just, I'm just not very interesting, to be honest, Andy, and I just, and I'm not being disingenuous here. I just, I have a wonderful job. Um, it, ca- it came to me slightly by mistake, which I'll tell you about, but, you know, I have a wonderful job, but it is my job. And, and then, you know, and then I go home and I muck out my pigs and take my dog for a walk and cook supper and go to bed at about half past nine if I can get away with it, ten if I've, you know, been a bit disorganised. Um, I'm not very, 
I'm not very exciting. I'm not very glamorous. I'm just very ordinary. And, and, and I'm very happy with being very ordinary. Um, and so I don't ever think of my, I don't, I hate the word celebrity and I really don't think I am one. I'm just somebody that people might recognize and go, oh, well, doesn't she do, you know, something with animals? Or aren't you the nature lady, as someone said to me today as I walked down the street? I'm not quite sure what they were referring to at that particular point. I hope you just said, yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> I did. I said, yes, that's me. Uh, and walked on. Um, uh, but yes, it's a, funny, it's a funny old thing, you know, doing, uh, doing a job that, that makes you recognisable. And, um, and, and I find it, I find it very bizarre, particularly with the younger generation now who seem to really want fame, want to be recognized. And, and I just think, I don't, I don't understand why. You know, there's so many examples um, over the decades um, of people whose lives have been, you know, n- not remotely enriched and uh, and made wonderful by being known and by being famous um usually it's the opposite and and that's why i say you know i don't there probably is a game a kind of fame game that you can play and and maybe you can you know do things to up your profile snog a footballer outside a nightclub um i don't go to nightclubs I don't know who any footballers are, and I've been married for 30 years, so that's not going to get me in the papers, is it? Um, well, I mean, so actually, that, I that would definitely get you in the papers for that very reason, <laughs> Kate. If you if you did do that, <laughs> I would say that would absolutely be <laughs> paper-worthy. <laughs> married Kate Humble, who knows nothing about football, was recently caught snogging X, Y, or Z. <laughs> <laughs> at a, at a yeah, club. do you know what I mean? I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not, being disingenuous, I am just just somebody who does a who, who does a job, and 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 I'm recognised by some, but it doesn't set me apart. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. You know yes, it does. I, I absolutely do, and I think there's I think that's partly you and I are similar in age, and we've both been in the industry for I mean, in my case, over 25 years, and and we've seen it change, we've seen it morph, and actually, I, I like to kind of look at it as this: you and I were on telly and radio and so on before, kind of the big brother generation, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and before social media, before, you know, we, we're so old, no one had even thought of the internet. <laughs> yes, well, yes. That, you know, that... we had to write things down in notebooks. Some of us still do, you know. I know, so do I. I've got two in my bag now. <laughs> yes, too right, too right. But no, you're you're right. The the sort of the perception of fame, as it were, and fame and celebrity are different things now as well. That's that's the other yeah. thing, you know. Celebrities, I, I would say, when we were growing up, Kate, celebrities were people who were on a pedestal because they had this sort of extreme rare talent, or because they had this ability to have an aura on camera, the likes of which most people couldn't deliver do you know what I mean be that presenters or actors or whatever yeah and that was also yeah. and actually I would say it was more actors and singers I don't think presenters were ever in that category I mean I would never call David Attenborough a celebrity everybody knows who he is he's got you know a level of respect and um and 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 sort of um affection that is extraordinary but you wouldn't call him a celebrity. You would just call him somebody who, who is apt. You, you know, who, who has who's had an incredible effect on 
all our lives has been, you know, part and parcel of so many of our lives for so long. But you know, celebrity would 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 give would, would give completely the wrong impression of who he is. I think with with him in particular, yes, I get what you're saying. But I think there were presenters back then who probably would fall into the celebrity category. You know, your Bruce Forsyths, your Michael Parkinsons, your Des oh, O'Connors, right. and so on. Yes, you're right. So sort of, um, yes, I suppose what. what that I'm thinking of, of your kind of factual presenters, I suppose, because that's what I am. Yes. Whereas, as you say, your kind of—I mean, they were more entertainers, though. Yeah. You know, they were—they—they had—they had tremendous skills. You know, they were comedians, or they could dance, or they could sing. You know, they brought something else other than just chat, which is basically what I do. I mean, anyone can do that. <laughs> yes, but they can't do it the way you do it, Kate, and that's—and that's the difference. You know, you're being. A, Typically with your surname, you're being incredibly humble, which I was expecting because, you know, for you, it's it's second nature. But that belies the research, the effort, the energy and the effortlessness you you purvey. You know, the, the, you have perfected being you on camera. There's no one else that can do well, that. No, thank goodness. Um, says the world Um, but I suppose I suppose you know going back to your question of of how it all started I mean it is quite weird really because you know again given that we're the same vintage I like that word um, word. given that that we're same vintage um, you know television wasn't a big feature in my life as a child um, because apart from anything else the test card was on more than programs were on. <laughs> there was only about four hours of telly a day. Um, and, you know, some of that was the news. And then there, there, there was football on a Saturday, you know, and, and, and that was kind of it. And, and a bit of, you know, Andy Pandy to chuck in just to sort of keep the young ones amused. Um, so telly, and, and, and I grew up in the countryside, so you didn't watch telly. You, you know, you went and built camps and climbed trees and went to A&E a lot because no one had invented health and safety, which was also good. Um, so, you know, you just, you, you had what I, what I think of as a proper childhood. And, um, and so I'm not, I'm still to this day, I don't really know where the idea of working in telly came from. I did, I, I flirted with the idea of, of acting, partly because um, I, went, I went to an all-girls school and because I was tall, um, if there was ever a play on it, it involved a bloke, um, I'd be cast as the bloke. So I got this sort of, <laughs> I got this sort of false impression that I was actually rather a good actor. Um, not at all. I was just, you know, useful um, to play the, just, just tall. To play the bloke. <laughs> yeah, because I was tall, and um, and and also, um, it turns out I look quite good in a beard. Um, so, although. I'm viciously allergic to spirit gum, or the spirit gum that they'd invented oh, in those days. So this was a proper beard. Oh, it wasn't just like, you know, wow. yeah, not painted on with a bit of eyeliner. No, oh, this was commitment. Sort, yeah, no, and moustaches and everything. I had to play, um, you know, what was that? It was an Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Anyway, I was her, you know, squeeze in that. Yeah, I had an enormous beard and a hat and everything. I had to do unspeakable things to my chest. You can imagine there's a lot of bandages involved. Anyway, so um, so yeah, so I thought maybe I could be an actor, and I actually um, I thought I'm going to go, to, I'm going to try and go to drama school. But my test to myself 
was to do an audition for the National Youth Theatre, which was, you know, was and perhaps still is. And it was an amazing uh, organisation and, um, and, you know, a great kind of early training ground for people who thought they might want to go into the theatre. And so I did an audition and I got called back and I thought, this is it, you know, I'm the next. I don't know, Redgrave yeah. or something. Um, and I did a second audition and then, and I didn't get in. And it just shows my level of commitment. I just thought, oh, well, obviously I'm just rubbish then. So <laughs> I won't bother with drama school and gave up the idea of acting instantly. Um, but still, but then thought, you know, maybe telly would be an interesting, you know, it would be the kind of creative side that I really liked. I've always loved um hearing stories, telling stories, finding out about stuff. I hated school and kind of the, the, the restrictions of exams. And, you know, I went to a school that was all about passing exams. And, and, and I just thought, I'm not, I'm not interested in passing the exam. I'm interested in finding out stuff. And so for me, the kind of background of telly seemed like the perfect job. I could, you know, I could use this excuse of, oh, I'm making a program for the BBC. I'm going to call, you know, the person who knows the most about whatever the program was we were doing. Um, and you had carte blanche to do that. That's what you were expected to do. It's fantastic. Yes. So I thought, well, if I, if I, if I start in telly and, and I started, I was 20 years old. Um, I, I left school when I was 18 and went and ran around Africa, which is, yeah, a whole other side story. We need to come um, to that. But, yes, I've, I've got that okay. down. It's something we must discuss. Have you? Yes. Okay, I'll do my crocodile impression for you later <laughs> then. Um, but um, yeah, so, so you know, came back and, um, and, and sort of started this process of trying to get into telly. And, and basically, I started as a runner. So um, one of the things that I am very good at and I have no shame in admitting it I am a brilliant tea maker no one makes tea better than me that is a Probably huge no one claim that is bold I know I know I know it's bold but I do drink an awful lot of it so I've got a lot of practice <laughs> so I make a very fine cup of tea and I'm very good at sweeping because I spent my whole childhood basically mucking out animals so you know I can deal with mess and I can make tea and that's basically as a runner you know, you're in. And, that's, you, that's, and you were tall, Crucially, you, you were tall as well, so that's <laughs> so, suited to be And also used, used to carrying really heavy things. So um, so basically, I was perfect. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, I got running jobs, and then I gradually kind of was allowed, I was allowed into polite society and allowed actually into a production office, and I, uh, you know, was a production secretary for a bit, and, and then um, got my sort of break as a researcher. And, um, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. And I did the the classic thing that you know everybody in the industry does. You you know I didn't have a I didn't have a permanent job. I've never had a permanent job, as my mum said. I've never had a proper job. Um, uh, so I was completely self employed and freelance, and you know just spent quite a lot of time scrabbling about looking for work, as as you do in those early days. And it's you know you either put up with it and um and and put up with the the insecurities of working that way and um and get very very good at um sort of pleading with your landlord to give you a break and say that you will pay your rent in you know maybe just a couple of months time or something uh, which I did a lot of um but 
essentially you either do that and and work your way up very very slowly up the ladder and that's what happened or you realize that that's not the world for you it's just it's it's not you know it's just too insecure um it's too much like hard work and you spend too much time worrying about not being able to pay your rent or your bills um but i stuck with it i stuck with it because i really loved it i loved as i say i love the research i love and still love it. I think it's one of the things that makes me want to carry on doing this job is it is when it's a great team, it is the greatest feeling in the world. It is a wonderful example of how collaboration um, can make something, uh, you know, and, and, and you might start with the most unpromising of starts. You know, you might have terrible weather. You might, you know, all sorts of things might have gone wrong. But if you've got a great team around you, you can end up making a really lovely program that can, you know, inform, entertain, uh, change people's points of view. Um, so it's a, it's a really compelling industry if you can put up with the bad stuff or the, all the insecurities of it. Yes. Um, and that's, and that's, that's why I sort of stuck with it. And, and, as I say, the, the kind of background of it, the, 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 the kind of machinations of making a program are the things that really, uh, really excited me, um, still excite me. Um, I love the, the production. I love the, 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 the pulling the material together, the doing the research, the talking to people. And, you know, sort of five, six, seven, eight years into that process, I had no... Um, wish at all to do anything other than basically be a researcher or, you know, end up producing or whatever it was. But I always wanted to be the person who found out the content, put the content together. That's what I loved. And uh, But then I got a job at the BBC, which basically screwed all that up. <laughs> yes, but, but in teleterms, what an upgrade as well. Not Not to dismiss the importance of the producers and the researchers and so on, but in terms of the hierarchy of your career progression, getting an on-camera gig, that was big cheese. Well, you say that. You don't have really, I think you give up a lot of influence. And I mean, you know, it's, it, again, people, people at different levels have, have different, um, different influence and 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 different levels of sway, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. But certainly, when you're starting out, and frankly, you know, we might as well talk about the realities. Even 25, 30 years on, it's not that different. You know, I could just as easily not get a job because I'm the wrong height. I'm too male. My beard's not right. <laughs> um, my voice is not right. Um, I'm just not the right person for that job. And that's not ageism or sexism or any sort of ism. It is just the way life is. And that is the hardest thing about being on screen. And I would say that probably a lot of actors and lots of people would say exactly the same thing, that actually you lose a lot of control when you say, I want to be in front of the camera rather than behind it. When you're behind it, you know, you first of all, you have longer term jobs. You might get a six month gig, whereas I might only have, you know, four weeks of work in that yeah. six months. 
um, you 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 know you can you can pick and choose your jobs much more when you're behind the camera. When you're on camera, you don't really have a say. I mean, yes, of course, I can turn down a job because I, for whatever reason, it doesn't feel right. But I can't go in and say that the job I want and necessarily get it in the way that, you know, if you've got lots of good experience and a good CV, you're in with a much more fighting chance of doing that behind the camera. So it's an odd one. And that was why when I was asked by, I basically joined the BBC. I worked on um, a, a wonderful series as an assistant producer called Animal Hospital, which I absolutely loved. Yes, I and at the end of the well. series, yeah. yeah, it was a great, it was a great series. It was a wonderful series to work on. I became, I became the worst sort of amateur vet. Oh my goodness. You know, if you, <laughs> if I, if we were actually in the same room now, I would know whether you have loctamal glands or not. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, and I can sort out your flea allergy in a, in a, in a trice. Um, but, um, yeah, so I did. I did uh, uh, this series of, um, of Animal Hospital, and then at the end of the series, the BBC do this. I don't know whether they still do it, but they used to do it in those days. You used to have an appraisal. It was like being called into the kind of headmistress's office oh. and and being given a school report. It was and literally it was like that. And so I had my appraisal at the end of this series, and um, luckily sort of did okay, got a kind of couple of gold stars and yeah, you know, we, we'd love to have you back. Great. And I said, well, I'd, I'd love it. You know, I'd love to come back. Um, I really, really enjoyed working on the series and, um, and they said, great, well, we'll see you in four months. And I was like, oh, <laughs> now I can't, I can't just sort of sit around for four months. I'm going to have to get another job. And, and it may mean that I'm not available in four months. And I wasn't, I wasn't playing games. I mean, that was just, that was the just, honest thing. Yeah. I was like, I, don't, I can't, I can't not work for four months. And, and because I'd never worked for the BBC before, of course, I hadn't really taken on board that there are lots of other programs made by the BBC. So I then, they said, well, maybe we can find you something else to fill the gap. And I was called the next day by the series producer of the holiday program. Do you remember that? I do. Um, and, um, and, this person said, um, oh, hello, uh, you're a travel writer, aren't you? Now, I'm sure we've all been in these situations before where, you know, it's not a total fallacy. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd written a, some travel, I'd, I'd even had an article published in a broadsheet newspaper on travel. Oh, well, then, um, then that's a yes. I mean, I thought you were going to say I'd written a postcard from, from a holiday saying what a lovely no, time I, mean, I was no, having. But, but, you know, I wasn't Bill Bryson. I mean, I hadn't. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. I was, it's like sort of one article and a couple of yeah postcards. Um, so I I thought I can't I can't I can't really I'm not going to say no, um, but I don't really think I can get away with saying oh yes no I definitely am. So I made one of those non-committal noises, you know, one of those <laughs> <"Hum." laughs> um, where I thought no one can accuse me of lying, but I'm not sort of writing off the idea. Um, and uh, and and this this lovely man said well. Great, we uh, we'd love you to come and work on the holiday program. Can you start tomorrow? And I said, uh, yeah, of course. So off I trotted to uh, uh, to the holiday program. I mean, in those days, so this was sort of uh, mid nineties. Um, again, you know, the internet wasn't really wide. You know, it wasn't in, in sort of the public domain. It, it obviously had been invented, but it wasn't. You know, us mere mortals didn't have access to it. It was still and, in that um, dial-up phase, wasn't it? Where you it hear was, that and it, sound Well, I and... think even I don't think we'd got it. I don't think the BBC had got it. We okay. were still very much, you know, on the phone and with sort of ancient computers that were run by mice running around 
in the you know in the background um and um so y- you would get when you started this big file uh slapped down on your desk with producer's guidelines which you had to work your way through it's unbelievably tedious um and not only tedious there was quite a lot in it about carnets um which are even more tedious and involve lots of form filling and is basically about taking camera equipment out of the country and saying you're not exporting it and you're going to bring it back again. Anyway, it's a dark art understanding a carne, it turns out. I never understood it. I didn't understand it on that day. And so I thought, I'm just going to go on, sit on the fire escape and have a cigarette. Um, and, and maybe I've just made a bad decision. <laughs> I shouldn't be doing this job at all. Um, and the next day, I got called into the overall editor of the program office. So, you know, the biggest of the big cheeses. Yeah. Um, and and I absolutely assumed that I was going to be sacked because I didn't understand carnets and I'd smoked on a fire escape, which, you know, looking back on it probably wasn't that wise. Um, and um, and instead, this, uh, this extraordinary woman um, sort of looked me up and down uh, taking in the fact that I looked like I'd just climbed out of the hedge, whereas she looked like she had, you know, just stepped out of the salon. Remember that, Ab? I do. Um, you know, she was all proper swingy hair and her nails matched her handbag and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so she looked at me like I was a sort of different species and said, um, have you ever presented before? And I went, uh, no. I said, do you want to? And at this point, I am A, the colour of a beetroot, thinking, you know, this is mortifying. And B, my brain is going like, going, why, why is she asking me this? What's going on here? And I thought, I know. I know what it is. It is, she thinks that everyone who comes and joins the holiday programme has this secret desire to put a tiny bikini on and skip down a beach in Mauritius. And literally nothing was further from my mind. So I found myself sort of, you know, totally overcompensated. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I don't want to present. I'm no, no, no. <laughs> I love doing what I'm doing. And, uh, and so we want you to do a screen test. And I was dismissed. Wow. Um, and, you almost yeah, didn't. She, she pretty much bullied you into it. Yeah. I mean, bully is a strong word. I don't mean bully, um, but, for, you know, you, know, you cajo- yeah, cajoled. cajoled. Was, I, was, I was basically given no choice. Um, and so, so off I went um, and it was in the days of those really clunky little sort of handicap things. And um, so I went with the, with the series producer and we walked along the towpath along the Thames. And he said, you know, do a piece to camera and do a bit of this and do a bit of that. And maybe we'll interview these people that are standing outside the pub. And they were all, you know, three sheets to the window. Perfect. Just what you need for a Vox um, Pop. Exactly. And, um, and it was very windy. And um, as we have already discussed, you know, um, my hair isn't the tidiest. So I probably look like something from the Muppets, just this sort of big kind of <laughs> uh, mass of strawy hair with some legs sticking out of the bottom. And um, anyway, I did it and I thought, I've done it now. And uh, we can just, you know, forget this whole embarrassing incident and I can go back to the job that I love. And that is exactly what I did until three weeks later when um the big boss walked into the office and I was sitting at my computer setting up a film for Jill Dando going to Africa and remember it exactly setting up a film in Zimbabwe and um, she stopped by my desk and she said 
can you go to France tomorrow? And I said, um, yeah, of course. Thinking they need someone to carry heavy stuff because that's what I'm good at. And she said, good, we'd like you to present a film on a barge in Normandy. Can you please do something about your hair? Wow. <laughs> that is literally how it started. And just to add, well, it wasn't insult to injury, but just to add a, a, a little layer to this. So we get out to France. The woman um, directing is still remarkably a friend, the wonderful Jill, um, and uh, who's an Aussie and doesn't take any kind of nonsense from anybody. So she was perfect. She really looked after me. And the crew were lovely. But um, it, it was let slip one evening uh, when we'd finished filming for the day and we were having a cheeky glass of wine. Um, Jill said, you do know why you got this gig, don't you? And I said, no. And she said, it was supposed to be Joan Collins. And um, and we came up with a theory. I have no idea whether this is true, but this was our theory, that Joan Collins had been pitched, you know, please do a film for the holiday programme on a boat in France. And she had imagined yacht and Saint-Tropez, not narrowboat and <laughs> Normandy. That's and when wonderful. she found out, pulled out. Wow. So I think I basically have Joan Collins to thank for my glittering career. <laughs> well, also, right place, right time. Well, yeah, kind of, I guess. Yes, I mean, it was it was that. And, I mean, what I did for really two years after that was because, I, as I say, I really loved the back behind-the-scenes stuff. But also, you know, I had been working in television for long enough to know the realities of being a presenter. You know, as, as, as we talked about earlier, it's, it is not a job for the faint-hearted. And if you, you know, if anyone thinks that being a presenter is going to suddenly make you richer than God and um, be showered with free stuff and treated like some otherworldly superstar... It is not like that in any way, shape or form. It's no, not sorry. like that 30 years on. And it's certainly not like that when you start off. Um, so I was, I knew what being a presenter meant. I knew that, you know, you could be and would be judged for all sorts of things that you couldn't do anything about. And I really didn't particularly want to go there. So as I say, I ended up working on the holiday program as an assistant producer but when they needed when somebody like Joan Collins went oh actually I don't want to go don't there they one. would send yeah. me and um, and eventually I was given um, a little slot of my own called imaginatively humble holidays and they were all <laughs> holidays under 100 quid um, and uh, and they were great you know we did all sorts of things um, but it was only, it was about two years later when I went back to Animal Hospital and worked on Animal Hospital as an AP. And um, and it was only, you know, it was about two years into this sort of dual life, if you like, which was working fine for me, um, that a director on the holiday program, we were in the pub, and he said, I really, I just don't get you humble. And I went, what do you mean? And he said, well, you've been given this incredible opportunity incredible people would give their right arms for this opportunity and you're not seizing it you're mucking about and he said i you know just put the frock on and take the check those were his exact words and i looked at him and i said but john i haven't got any frocks <laughs> and i can't do it just because you know, I might get paid a bit more than I get paid for being a researcher. I said, you know, I can't fake it. 
And we've all seen it. We've all seen people who do programs or, you know, present something that they're not really engaged in. And and it doesn't make them very engaging. Yeah. Funnily they're, they're enough. dialing it in, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And I can't pull that off. I know I can't pull it off. And also, I don't want to. I want to feel fulfilled and excited. And, and you know, we work, as you said yourself, you know, we work extraordinary hours, uh, ridiculous hours. Um, uh, you know, we have to work through food poisoning or whatever it is. You know, there has got to be an upside. And the upside for me is that you just love doing it. So that was why I was really resistant to being a full-time presenter because I wasn't sure whether I would get enough work to be able to, you know, pay my way that was also work that I really, really wanted to do. Hello, I'm Amber. I work with the team that bring you this show and the Driven Chat podcast. And we love that you're listening. It would be really cool if you could just chuck us five stars, subscribe and tell your friends. Thank you. The Andy J podcast. Yes, this is, I mean, this is so interesting, Kate, because you've been able to take a life approach with with an incredibly mature attitude, a really mature head, which a lot of people, when they think of, and, and you and I, we've already discussed fame and celebrity and so on, and it's something neither of us have caught it. And it, it's clearly something that has never appealed to you. You know, the idea of being a celebrity doesn't interest you at all. So therefore, yeah. that side of the job, which so many, we both know it, we've met hundreds of people that want it, that have sought that rather than job fulfillment, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And some people have achieved it and that's great for them because that's what they want. And then they get it and then they realize it probably isn't what they were expecting. But you have taken the the approach of I want to love what I do. But is, is that also and I mean, this as a sort of lifestyle choice as well. Kate, is that also kind of twinned with the fact that in your private life, you were very settled because you you did settle into a into a, a lovely relationship with your now husband who, who you've been with for forever very early on, you know, there was none of this kind yeah. of frivolity in your twenties, kind of jumping it, from it, it footballer to footballer. Definitely, definitely made a difference, and it also, I think, the other thing that helped uh, and still helps tremendously is that you know my husband is in the industry. You know, he's a he's a, a, a producer and a director, um, and he's, he's a BAFTA so winner. He's a BAFTA winner. He yeah. is a BAFTA winner, a multi award winner actually, um, but. Um, but you know, he, um, but similarly, you know, he, like me <laughs> comes from good Yorkshire stock. And, uh, if you come from Yorkshire stock, um, I'm second generation, but he was born in Scarborough. If you come from Yorkshire stock, basically no one has any trap with, you know, you being kind of tricky or above yourself. Um, so he was never going to let that happen. Um, and, 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 or, I mean, yeah, I mean, he would have. He would have and would still, you know, give me a right old telling off if I had any airs and graces. And I was, as you say, I was really, really lucky. I met him. I actually met him when I was 16, but he ignored me. Um, uh, so, you know, it took a while to kind of make him realize that I existed. Um, but we got together when I was 20 and uh, and now I'm 53. So, um, yeah, he's 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 been... He has been, a, I mean, it's an awful cliche, but he has been a proper rock. And he has been somebody who has allowed me to 
um, feel very secure. And that security has come out, I think, in the choices that I've made uh, in my professional life as well. Yes, yes, you can kind of see that 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 has clearly, even if it's subconsciously, been a real boon for you. It's been a, yeah. you know, you haven't, we do see it. And it, I mean, it's happened to a lot of us. I, I got very carried away in my twenties as a single man with some, you know, TV money in my pocket and some shows on, in my CV. I, I sort of, you know, people approaching you and, oh, you're that bloke off the telly. And it, it does turn your head. You didn't have that because you no. weren't going to the clubs with the footballers. You didn't need to. You were happily no. settled down at home. Well, and also I've never been that sort of person. I've never, I don't, I mean, I didn't go to any of my friends' 21st birthdays because I don't like parties. And and I, you know, would have been very uh, ashamed, really, to admit that back then. Um, I find them, I find them panic-inducing, actually. Um, I was, there's, there, there used to be, I don't, again, I don't know whether they still do it, but if you were on the cover of the Radio Times, which I've been on the cover of, couple of times um you get invited to the covers party there's a covers party for all the people who've been in the covers over the year um and so i've been invited twice and um don't go i don't go because i just it's not my that's not where i feel comfortable or happy what i feel comfortable and happy doing is with you know my really good friends um around the kitchen table um eating something that one of us cooked and uh or going for a walk with my dog i'm not i've never been somebody i've never been i've never been a party animal i told you i was boring at the beginning of this interview and now i'm really proving it well you've proven to be anything but except for your dislike of parties and snogging footballers outside of clubs i mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Other than that, I would say you're absolutely fascinating. But 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 the word is grounded. If you don't mind me saying, Kate, you know that's that's what you are. You you've got that that sort of northern true grit that that is something that we're all proud to have. When you know when us us people from from afar. But you you, you haven't been swayed by showbiz because that's not what you courted. No, and also I think the. The, the, the key thing really was that initial sort of eight to 10 years that I had in the industry not being on camera, yeah. you know, and, 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 and seeing, having that experience, um, seeing uh, the realities, which, you know, are largely not glamour, not, you know, so I went into it ultimately with my eyes at Absolutely wide open as to what the industry was that I was, you know, that I was part of, um, because I had worked my way up right from the bottom and yeah. seen, you know, I understood when I did that first film in France. Although um, I I felt very awkward, actually, it did come quite naturally to me because I knew what everybody did. I knew what the lang- you know, I knew the grammar of making a program. I'd sat in edits. I'd I'd physically edited. You know, I'd I'd you know interviewed people before they were then interviewed by presenters. I sort of I knew how to put a program together. I knew why you shot things four times from different angles. I understood all that. So it made my job much easier. But it also meant that I wasn't there thinking, oh, this is all terribly glamorous and someone's about to leap out of a hedge with a large makeup bag and make me look amazing because that never happened. No, 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 no. Excellent. Yes, no, precisely. You were you were fully informed. You had your eyes wide open, which I which I love. We, we touched on it fleetingly and I promised I'd come back to it. And I wonder, actually, because of what you've said, if this 
played a big part in the maturity that you had age 20. Your year out, in your, I think you were 18, travelling Africa. Yeah, 90. I went 90. when I was 90. 90. Yeah. Um, yes, it was. So I, um, I basically, I don't know why my parents put up with me really, because I was clearly quite a stroppy kid. There were things that I, you know, was very sure about all the way through my childhood, very, very sure about. Um, and um, one of them was that university was not going to be for me. Um, and neither of my parents had the chance to go to university for various reasons. Um, and, you know, for them, uh, university was a great gift that they could strive. They strived so hard. They worked so hard to enable my brother and I to have a really good education and to go to university. That was what they wanted. And I'm grateful for minx that I am. I said, I'm not going. Um, and, and I think the reason was, and I alluded to this earlier, but I found the way that I was taught um, too restrictive. It was, it was, it was literally, I was learning how to pass exams. You know, I did, I did sort of all the A-levels you'd imagine I'd do. You know, I did English, I did history, I did Latin actually as well. But, um, but you know, and, and, and I, I remember we, we were doing a, a poet uh, for A-level, uh, George Crabbe. You know, I mean, what a bad choice for, <laughs> to, to get, you know, teenage girls interested in poetry. You know, the person who wrote Peter Grimes, and I'm sorry for anyone out there who's a George Crabbe fan, but really, I mean, it's dismal. And, you know, and then the other thing that you would have to do with with your, with the poetry that you were learning was, you know, take a poem and you do this for, for your homework and kind of, you know, analyze it to the point where if it had any shred of appeal, it was all gone because you were trying to decide why they might have used the semicolon at that point or whatever it was. And um, this had happened. You know, we've been set a set a, uh, a, a poet. Go and find a George Crabbe poem in the library, and um, and and you know, pull it apart. And I had gone into the library and found a, 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 an anthology and was flicking through it and came across a poem that blew my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely blew my mind, and um, and I remember going into class the next day and saying to my English teacher, "I've just I've discovered this poet, this amazing poet, and I don't know whether they're a he or a she, and they don't use capital letters or punctuation or anything, but the words, the words are just amazing, and they're called E. e. Cummings." And she said, "Yeah, but oh, we're not doing Cummings; we're doing Crabs." Oh. And that was the end of the conversation, and that was the moment that I thought, "Okay, I'm not doing this." I'm not doing this anymore. I want to, if I want to find out about Cummings, I'm going to go and find out about Cummings. I don't need to go to university to do it. Yes. So I thought rather than go to university, I would go to Africa um, and start learning. And, you know, I grew up at a time when we didn't go on foreign holidays. We didn't have the money to go on foreign holidays and people didn't do it. Culturally, people didn't really do that you know, in the way that people do now, um, in the same way that, you know, we didn't eat avocados and no one had heard of a sweet potato. You know, we, we went on holiday to Somerset um, or whatever. Um, so I wasn't very well travelled. I did do Eurorail when I was 16. I saved up and saved up and saved up to get and, and worked all sorts of jobs to buy my 100 quid Eurorail ticket and slept in stations a lot. 
But, you know, Africa for me was just like about as far and about as different and foreign as I could go. Um, and it was the, I mean, it was a, a totally formative experience. It, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't really know how to articulate it, except that the things that I learned when I was there about, about people, about human nature, about astonish, the astonishing generosity of people who have nothing, um, of resilience, of incredible wildlife, of landscapes that blow your mind, of smells that make everything, make your heart leap. It, it was just the most amazing, incredible, difficult, uh, mind-blowing experience. And, um, and as I say, it, it, that, I'm afraid no university was ever going to give me. Yes, no, you had University of Life, and, and what an experience. Wow. I mean, incredible stuff. Um, Kate, there's so much I want to ask you, but I'm mindful of the time as well, and we haven't spoken yet about this new book of yours, and, and we must talk about it because you've you've just brought it out, and I believe you're also going to go on a little tour around the UK to meet people and, and, and discuss it and discuss yourself and, and have this wonderful kind of meet-and-greet experience. So can we talk about the book? And then I would just want to come back to a sort of few quick fire questions that yeah. that, that might be nonsense, things that, that have come out of the ether, that one of them in particular I hope is true. I really hope it's true. But, <laughs> but, but just before I ask you about Home Cooked, the new book, you did promise me a crocodile impression. Oh, I did. So um, one of the jobs that I had when I worked in Africa was on a crocodile farm. And um, there was um, um, one of my jobs, uh, on the farm was um, we, you would have eggs uh, in a in trays under infrared light and uh, all, all very carefully labelled. And um, when it got close to the time that they should be hatching, my job was to go up and just gently rattle the trays um, and and then listen very carefully. And if any of the eggs went, <laughs> yes, that's the noise. <laughs> You knew that it was about to hatch and you would have to, then I would have to break the shell very gently um, and then get your finger out of the way as quickly as possible because these little things come out with teeth and they just latch onto the first thing they find. And they may be small, but those teeth are really sharp. Um, But yes, so I am, although I have been very vocal about never wanting to be a mother and have children, actually... I am the mother to quite a lot of crocodiles knocking about somewhere in Zambia. That is lovely. That is, uh, what a lovely story. And incidentally, just to very quickly react to the the story, you know, you saying how you've been vocal about wanting to n- never be a mother and so on. That's something you, we, you said early on, you know, you don't court headlines and so on. And that's one of the things that has surprised me. Um, not that you don't court headlines, but that there have been headlines about this. You've spoken out about it a few times. And I'm just sort mm. of, I, I have three children and, and I, I spoke to my wife about this. I said, oh, yeah, one of the things that is a headline for Kate is that she, you know, she never wanted to be a mum. And my wife's reaction was exactly the same as mine, which was so what? You know, what, why, yeah. is, why is that a headline or, or even something that you have to justify? I don't, I don't I get it. I don't get it. Well, in the end, that's why I chose to speak out about it, um, because I got absolutely fed up with every single interview I did, because I got married when I was 23, and suddenly, you know, I was 26 and didn't have kids. I was 28 and didn't have kids. I was 30 and didn't have kids. What the hell was going on? And and I just, you know, I would sort of bat the question away and kind of go, well, you know, I'm just not ready yet, or because I... 
really felt, A, like you and your wife said, who cares? Yeah. I mean, why is this of anybody's, why is it in anybody's interest whether I have children or not? But also, it's none of your sodding business. Well, quite. You know, if yeah. you don't know whether actually I've got some really sad situation that allows me, that doesn't allow me to have kids and it might break my heart. Yes. And you don't know that. You don't know that this is my choice or not. So how dare you question me and keep questioning me about it? And in the end, when I, it was basically, I got to 40 and I thought, pretty much everything's shriveled down there by now. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel braver about speaking out. And actually, it was the wonderful Emma Barnett. She was on uh, Five Live at the time. And I did a big interview with her. And because uh, I just thought, I'm going to cut this off now. I'm just, I don't want to be asked about this anymore. I'm going to do one big interview. I'm going to lay my cards on the table. And then, you know, we can just move on and forget about it. Mm. And what was, what was amazing and actually... I was, I don't, I'm, proud isn't the right word, but I was really, really glad that I did that interview because the uh, the feedback that I got from so many young women and young men saying, thank you for speaking out about this, because actually there are lots of people out there, and I find this astonishing in 2022, um, there are lots of people out there who still feel a huge social pressure to have children when yes. actually their gut is saying they don't want to do it. And, uh, you know, the, the world cannot deal with the number of people in it already. You know, and for people in the Western world to feel duty-bound to have children is just ridiculous. We are not short of people. We don't need to procreate if we don't want to. Yes. And we're very lucky that we live in a society where we do have that choice and we have the means of stopping us having children. So you know what? Stop asking about it. I'm still asked about it now. Still asked about it now. Yes, like, I, I find that hell, startling. Read the, read the internet. It's all there. Well, I mean, it's, make it's, something up. it's on one of my lists of don't bother asking Kate about. You know, it's, yeah. it's like, well, I don't need to discuss that. You've, you've been on record. It's an old story. Yeah. So what? Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I don't exactly. get it. Don't see the... Anyway, yeah, so I'm sorry you've been plagued with things like that. It, for the record, it was on my uh, notes not to discuss it. It's just you mentioned it, so I thought I would give you my reaction for what it's worth. Um, Kate, let's let's talk about Home Cooked, because I, I do want to make sure that we have a, have had a proper chat about this, because it is a beautiful book. It's a book that you've Thanks. clearly put a lot of time and effort into. I know that it looks absolutely splendid. It's, it's one of these things that arrived to my house uh, earlier today, and... It's something that you'd be very happy to keep on the coffee table, actually, which is quite rare for a cookbook. You know what I mean? It's it's one of those things you expect. Well, it, everyone in their kitchen has got a place for the cookbooks, you know. But this is this is such a nice looking thing. You you could. Put it, it, I mean, and and I I can't re I can't take any credit for the nice looking bit. <laughs> um, it is it is. I mean, there'll be a lot of your listeners, I suspect, going, "Why the hell is she writing a cookbook? Doesn't she spend most of her life with an arm up a sheep or a pig?" Or or, you know, in the mud. I mean, do we even actually want to cook this woman's food? Um, and that would be a fair comment, I would say. Um, but the reason that the cookbook came into was was even was even considered was that at the beginning of lockdown, um, and when when you know television channels needed content, 
And I had done a series for Channel 5 uh, about uh, called um, A Country Life for Half the Price, about people moving from the city to the countryside. And it happened to be rather a prescient series because, of course, when lockdown started and COVID started, lots of people started thinking, oh, actually, I don't really want to be in the city anymore. So even though the programme was made long before anyone had even heard of COVID, it suddenly struck a chord. Mm. And so it got it got good viewers. And as you know, you know, you only work um, if your programs do well. So I uh, luckily that program had done well and I was asked to do uh, another one. And because we were in lockdown, um, the, 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 the people at Channel 5 said, well, maybe you could make a series on your farm. Um, your husband is a director and a cameraman. And um, so, you know, you can only infect each other and you've got animals, which people quite like. And um, so make a series, but also could you include some cooking in it? And I was like, what? Why? I mean, you don't even know I know how to cook. Um, and and but I think there was this sort of idea again of everyone being kind of stuck at home and having to cook, um, and they and they wanted me to do the same. Um, and and I thought, well, if I'm gonna, and I do cook, you know, I grew up in a rural area. I grew up in the seventies, as we've discussed. So you know, basically, if you lived in a rural area and in, in that time, you had to cook, otherwise you starved. You know, so my mum cooked, I cooked with her. Um, you know, we ate shepherd's pie and Lancashire hot pot and spaghetti bolognese. You know, that was that was the sort of bog standard food of food. the seventies. Yeah, um and, and very lovely it was too. Um so I do cook, but I don't cook anything fancy. I'm not a trained cook. I have no idea when I watch Master Chef what they're talking about most of the time. I haven't heard of any of those ingredients, let alone the equipment. Um <laughs> so I thought, well, I can't going back to the I can't fake it thing, I'm just going to cook what I know and I'm going to do it in my way. I'm not going to have, you know, well, we couldn't have anyone in the background, you know, clearing up and making sure everything was perfect. It just had to be me. And I started uh, thinking, right, well, the first thing I'm going to make is a soda bread because at the time, as you may remember, everyone in the world was showing off their sourdough prowess. It was a big thing. And yes. Oh, my goodness. It was a nightmare. And I killed a sourdough starter probably every two days. I really tried <laughs> to make sourdough and totally, totally failed. All I did was make cow pats. And, um, and it was just, it, you know, and I got so fed up with the kind of smug, oh, look at me with my perfect sourdough, my perfect, you know, wicker basket. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. Um, but then my lovely friend Jennifer said, just make salad, uh, make soda bread. It's yes. really easy. And oh my goodness, it is. And oh my goodness, you know, even an idiot like me can make it. And it tastes delicious. It's delicious. So I made a soda bread. And when the episode went out, I was staggered by the amount of pictures of soda bread that people sent me saying, you have released us from oh, the sourdough tyranny. Wonderful. Thank you. Congratulations. And it, it was love. I mean, it was lovely, and it felt like it felt like we had a little bit of a, a we had a little bit of a club to sort of naysayers the sourdough. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I love sourdough, but I'm never going to make it. Um, so, and 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 all my recipes were basically the soda bread equivalent. I, you know, I make a chocolate and marmalade cake 
I can't bake. I can't be doing with all that precision stuff. This is literally made in one saucepan. There's no washing up. You tip it into a pan and cook it for about 45 minutes. It's an amazing cake. It's not going to win Bake Off, but then I don't want to go on Bake Off. Well, quite. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's so all the recipes I did were like that. And and so there, there was this sort of gr- groundswell in a way of people saying, you know, we love your recipes. Where can we get them? Where are they? Where, uh, you know, and, and, and oh, you should do a cookbook. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> um, and kind of, you know, laughed it off. And then it sort of increased and we did another series and they, the Channel 5 said, you know, people are really responding to your food. So we want more food in the next series. So we, so we did more food and, um, and, and at the time, um, so th- literally this time last year, um, I was, I had been commissioned to write another non-fiction book, the follow-up to A Year of Living Simply, yes. um, which had been published just before lockdown. And, um, but I realized that this book that I wanted to write, which is about the concept of home, what makes a home a home, um, I wasn't going to be able to research because, of course, everyone was in lockdown. I wasn't going to be able to go and see people. I needed to talk to people. I needed to see them in the environment that they called home and find out why they, why it was, you know, what it was about that space that made it important to them. Um, so I phoned my lovely publisher and said, um, I'm not going to be able to do this book uh, and deliver it in January 2022. And she went, you're right. It's fine. Let's defer it for a year. And I said, okay, great. And I said, I'm just going to mention this. Um, but I'm, there's, you know, there's been a, a, a few suggestions that maybe I should do a cookbook. And she went, Kate, that is a really bad idea. Don't <laughs> even think about it. Oh, so no. it's a, and she, this is a woman who publishes a lot of cookbooks. You know, she knows the market yeah, really she's, well. She's aware of what, she what people said, want. <laughs> exactly. And she said, the thing is, it's a super overcrowded market and you are not known for food. So the reality is, I can take an idea to my sales team and I will. I've got a meeting with them in two days. If you want to do me a proposal with 80 to 100 recipes included in it, by all means, send me a proposal. But she said, I don't think it's worth your time. So I sent her a proposal inevitably because, you know, it was like a gauntlet being thrown down and I thought, oh, why not? I mean, I'll just give it a go. What the hell? With no expectations. I mean, none. Um, but I did enjoy the process. I enjoyed the process of thinking, well, what would be in this book? You know, and it would be, what recipes would they be? Well, they'd be my, they'd be my, they'd be the stuff that I learned from my mum or that me and my friends sort of sit around and cook at, cook at the kitchen table or, you know, it'll just, it would be the kind of equivalent and maybe you and your wife have one of these and some of your listeners have one of these. You have a, a kind of really tatty folder that's full of things that you've yes, t- torn out of the newspaper, you've written stuff down <laughs> quickly off the telly or, you know, or you've got from your mum or you've just cooked all the time. And I thought maybe I'll just do that. I, I'll, you know, that would be the book. Um, anyway, so I put in the proposal and at the end of January last year, my publisher came back sort of slightly surprised and went, um, sales team want that book. And I said, do they? And she went, yes. And she said, the thing is, Kate, we're going to want to publish it early spring 22. And cookbooks take a long time. There's a lot of production in a cookbook, as you've just alluded to. You know, they they do look beautiful. Yes. And the words are really only part of it. You know, the other part of it is the design, the, photo- the photography. And so she said, I need this book in two months. Well, 
we talked about my, my long-suffering husband. I mean, we did nearly get divorced every day. I was vile <laughs> trying to write that book because we were filming at the same time. So it was unbelievably oh, pressure. And usually when I write, I take myself away from everybody, from polite society. I go and find a little studio in the middle of nowhere. The last book I wrote in a little cabin in West Wales uh, in January in the rain with my dog. And I literally went mad, grew a beard again, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but I couldn't do it this time because A, we were filming and B, it was locked down. I couldn't go anywhere. So it was, it was quite a stressful process doing it. And, um, uh, and then I submitted it and then you have the photo shoot. And um, I'd been recommended uh, a photographer called Andrew Montgomery and I looked at his stuff and I thought, gosh, it, it really is very, very beautiful. And we talked on the phone and I sort of said, you know, this is the sort of vibe that I want the book to have. It's very much kind of wrapped up in the farm, in my community, in local produce, in seasons. Um, and so that's kind of what the photography needs to reflect. And, and, and the food can't be fussy and overstyled. And, and he's like, yeah, no, totally get it, Kate. So he came down to the farm. Um, in, in The first time he came down was in March, actually. And I was still writing the book because he wanted to get some shots when we were lambing. Oh, and wow. I'd been up yeah. all night uh, <laughs> in the lambing shed. So I was very tired, not looking my best. I said, you can photograph sheep, but you can't photograph me. I mean, you know, I look half dead. Um, and I spent the two hours before he arrived chasing a ewe, a very wild first-time mum around the shed, trying to pen her oh. up with her lamb so they could bond. And it literally would take me two hours to catch her and get her into this pen and get her settled and get the lamb feeding and all this stuff. And, and she turns up. And uh, says, oh, that's lovely. I'll get a shot of that lamb. Opens the pen, the you bolt. And I'm like, I hate you. I've met you for two minutes. And I hate you. And I, I, just, I just don't, I'm not sure we're going to be able to work together. I mean, I really did Amazing. loathe him. Um, and it turns out that he just basically ignored me um, and was totally marvellous and was so patient and so long-suffering. I hate having my photographs taken, which no one understands because they go, you're on the telly, but it's a, such a different oh, thing. No, it's, it's his and I, yes. And he was, and, and, and what, what I loved was that he got what the food was about and he got the book and he got that what was really important was the kind of provenance of this food. And I love the fact that you say the book is so beautiful because that is total testimony to Andrew putting up with me being a complete cow um, and um, and just, you know, saying, you know what, I know you hate this process, but we've got to do it. And if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. Yes. And, um, and, 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 and then the designer who's, who's worked on all my other or the, the previous two books that I'd done with this publisher, Jonathan, again, you know, he just he got it and he came down to the photo shoot and and when I first saw the book, which was literally only, you know, two weeks before it came out, um, I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. I hold it and I think, I don't know whether this is really my book, if that makes sense. Yes, it's it does. So, yes. It is so beautiful it and is. it's so, it's kind of feels very grown up. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. And I, I do. Just, I think I I. I didn't do this. I mean, the words are mine and the recipes are mine and my mum's and my friends, but it, it is, it is what I wrote, but 
unlike a, a, a you know a purely narrative non-fiction book, which is all I've ever done before, there's so much of other people's input in there that it feels it goes back to what we said about the joy of making of the joy of telly when it works is that glorious collaboration. Yes, it's the team. This book is that. Yeah, it is a glorious collaboration, and I was am incredibly lucky to have worked with the people that I work with on it because it is testimony to to all of them as well as me. It is. I, I would. I thoroughly encourage the listeners to, to go and get this book because yes, it, it looks beautiful. You're absolutely right, and and, and what a lovely way of summarising it as well, there, Kate. The, the team effort, the love that's gone into this book is is clear by a number of people. But but the other key reason I would suggest to get it is actually you are not shortchanged on any level with the number of recipes either. I mean, you have filled this book. There's enough recipes to last people many years. It's, it's terrific. So. Yeah, it's a triumph. Well done. I'm really impressed. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, thank not you. that you did I mean, it for my for me to be impressed, but I am. It's very, it's very <laughs> impressive. Well, as as you know, you know, you can work. Lots of people work, and I've said this. You know, I said this earlier, but um, lots of people work incredibly hard and get very little thanks or recognition for it. And when you do get thanks and recognition for something that you've done, it really matters. And um, so, thank you. Oh, it's it's really it really is great. So I'm very impressed. I'm I'm looking forward to actually cooking some of these dishes for myself. And I'm a, an atrocious cook, but you've made me feel like I probably could have a go at some of these. So I'm well. You I'm know excited. what? I'm going to I'm going to charge you to do, and I want you to tell me how you get on. Okay. I would like you to make Ludo, my husband Ludo's cheese on toast. Oh, I it's could in do the autumn that. Section. Bring it on! Yes. And it is so. We, you have to have, of course, when you write recipes, they all have to be tested um, because no one wants to spend money on a cookbook that's full of recipes and then money on the ingredients that then full of recipes that don't work. So thanks to the wonderful and the wonderfully named Pooch Horsberg, uh, who was the home ec who helped me, you know, I can't tell you how much she helped me with this book and with bolstering me when I was going, oh, I don't know how to do this. Um, she tested all the recipes and she tested Ludo's cheese on toast and wrote to Ludo and said, this is not only the best cheese on toast recipe I have ever, ever tasted, but my husband is demanding that I make it literally weekly. <laughs> I can't wait. And it's so easy. It is so easy. Um, and it is absolutely delicious. And, and when you need something, you know, kind of quick and comforting, but isn't just sort of out of a tin um, uh, or, or, or a kind of, you know, a takeaway. Seriously, it's great. And it's all his. I mean, I, mean, I don't take any, I can't, I can't take any credit for it at all. <laughs> I'll let you know how I get on, Kate, because I'm really excited Please about do. this. I really will. Now, Kate, I'm so mindful of the time. We've, we've gone long and I love you for that. Thank you so much for giving me all of this time. You've, you've been incredible company. I told you before we started recording that I thought we could speak for four hours. And you said, oh, we'll, we'll barely fill half. Well, it's, it's been incredible. I have to finish with one question. I have loads of questions to ask you here. And I've got, I'm going to have to choose which one to ask because I don't quite know. There's, I've got so many. We're going to have to do this again, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> 
that your listeners are going, no, no, please don't do it again. Don't do it again. <laughs> they really not. They're probably just saying, why don't you keep talking? But it's because I need a wee, that's why. So <laughs> Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm now at the cross leg stage, can I just say. <laughs> Good. good that's good to know no I'm not alone so I'm going to ask I, oh, I, I'm literally just going to honestly I've got like 12 questions here that I'm really desperate to know the answers to but I'm just going to go with this one is this true or false you were once a magician's assistant oh do you know what I wish it was true oh. it makes me sound so much more interesting than I am <laughs> I, and, and I can tell I'm going to tell you a little story about that so I um, was doing a talk at the Royal Geographical Society. And at the time, Michael Palin, bowing down, bowing down, uh, was the president of the Royal Geographical Society. And he was going to introduce me before I did this talk. And um, I went and sat in his office and he said, um, you know, I've written this introduction. And, um, and he said, he said, um, and uh, you were a magician's assistant and you used to be sawn in half, apparently. And I said, You've been reading Wikipedia, haven't you? And he said yes. And I said, it's not true. I'm really sorry. I don't know who put it up there. I love them for it because, as I say, it makes me sound completely brilliant. It's very cool. But it's very cool. But it's it's very, very, very cool. And it would be even cooler if it were true. Well, do you know what, Kate? The, the, the fascinating thing is it's even on IMDb, who I trust. I'm always dubious about Wiki. Always dubious about Wiki, even though they're terrific, don't get me wrong, but IMDb is very rarely, oh my word, we'll have to have words. Or, or you just, you know, train up as one for just for the heck of it. I could, couldn't I? I mean, I could get myself a spangly costume and a saw and have a whole new career. Or just, you know, just to make that a reality. What Kate did next. I mean, it could work, (laughs) couldn't it? I tell you what, I, tell, I, I would be too scared to be the one that's sawn in half because I think I think the magic might go and someone might just do. No, we're, no, hang on, Kate. We're not. We, you're not being creative enough here. You know, we've got Escape to the Farm. You could have, should have been a magician's assistant, oh. escapologist. I'm seeing, yeah. I'm seeing a new act here. Oh, okay, do you want to be my agent? I'm up for it. I'm up for it. <laughs> you might get a couple of quid if you're lucky. <laughs> Yeah, but there'll be some great food along the way, so I'm up for it. It sounds good to me. But it's not true. Oh, what a shame. Well, let's let's fix that. Let's remedy that sometime. Okay. Okay. Okay, that's a deal. That is an absolute deal. I don't know how I'm going to find a magician to teach you how to be sawn in half. (laughs) But but, there's a will, there's a way, and I'm up for it. So if you are, I am. Brilliant. We'll do it. We'll do it. (laughs) Kate, you've been the most wonderful company. Thank you. I've really, really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much. Thank you. I did too. It was lovely, really lovely. And I'm usually a bit kind of, oh, so I have to do an interview. Anyway, but it was a joy. Thank you very much. Wonderful. And one of these days, I'll tell you that all of these other mad facts that I've got here that are probably all nonsense, but I would, I would, I'm going to have to ask you over a cup of tea someday. Brilliant. Let's do that. Perfect. Thank you, Kate. What a joy. Andy J podcast. <laughs> there we go. I really enjoyed that. You can probably tell. What a lovely lady. What an absolutely special, special lady to be able to chat to for such a long time. My thanks to Kate for giving me so much of her time. Make sure you go and see her on tour, her home cooked cookbook, which is quite literally called Kate Humble Home Cooked Recipes from the Farm, is available now as well. And yeah, what a special superstar. Really enjoyed her. Thank you to you, most importantly, for listening to this episode. I really appreciate it. I hope you're a regular, a follower, a subscriber, whatever they're called these days. 
That means the world to me. If you're one of those incredible people that's been listening for weeks or months or years, then bless your heart. If you are new to the show, please check out our colossal back catalogue of incredible celebrity conversations. We've spoken to so many big, big names from Harry Hill and Joe Wicks to Jeremy Clarkson and James May and Olivia Coleman and Liam Neeson and many, many more. We've got some cracking episodes out there just waiting for your attention. So please dive into our back catalogue, tell your friends and share with the world if you'd be so kind. In the meantime, I wish you a wonderful week. We have more special guests coming for you. I'm not going to tell you who's on next week. I'll tell you for why. I've got a couple in the can and I don't know who to put out first. So (laughs) I've got to make that decision with my team. And uh, there are a couple of really, really good conversations coming up over the next few weeks, though. So I, I hope and think you'll really enjoy them. Take it easy. Walk well and make someone smile. Speak to you soon. Bye bye. The Andy J Podcast. 